Stephanie is helping me out. My son asked me, where's the notes? <laughs> oh, they're printed by the office. So I'm sorry they got here a little late. So if you didn't get them, stick your hand up and uh, we'll get some notes to you. The, you know, we've had a lot of notes today, so we're going to start charging five cents a page. Just uh, cover that. Uh, no, you, you'll want to have those. I kind of depend on them, so I don't have to repeat myself a lot. And I don't know about you, but it's always kind of a helpless feeling if you didn't hear the reference that the pastor quoted and you really wanted to write it down. So that's why I have those. That's why they're there. So all of the references that I plan on uh, referring to are already in there. And uh, the beauty of it is you can follow along however you want to. I had uh, one member in my previous church that took my notes and wrote them into her notebook by hand so that she could handwrite all the notes. Uh, so however you want to use them, it's up to you. doesn't bother me a bit, but they're just there to be a help to you, as is the screen. It helps uh, me. It helps you. We're all on the same page together. Well, I love the book of Psalms. I really, I'm excited to preach from Psalm 2 this afternoon. Um, a while ago, I was at a funeral service for one of our uh, church members up north, and it was just brought up in that funeral service that she read through the book of Psalms every month. And I thought, well, that's kind of a cool idea. So I started doing that, and I love the book of Psalms. It, uh, you know, sometimes I think when we're doing our Bible reading and, and things like that, we forget that everything we go through is addressed in Scripture. And one of the reasons I love the book of Psalms is the emotions and the thoughts and, and the anxieties and, and everything that the psalmist goes through is right there on the page. And you get to read how, you know, for example, David. David wrote a lot of psalms, but you get to read how David processed the struggles he was going through. And how there are several psalms where David starts off saying, what is going on? I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> and as he goes along, he ends the psalm with, I'm trusting in the Lord. Right, So it took him a while to get there, but I love, I just love how raw the emotions are and how it just speaks to each and every one of us. So I would encourage you uh, to dive into the book of Psalms if you haven't been doing so. I think sometimes we just throw it in, in uh, pamphlets and stuff at funerals and things like that and don't really spend much time in the book of Psalms. But man, it is rich with uh, just some just processing life through the lens of Scripture. So Psalm 1, we looked at last time, it emphasizes God's law. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Psalm 2 focuses on prophecy. The people in Psalm 1 delight in the law. In Psalm 2, they defy it. In Psalm 1, it begins with a beatitude. Psalm 2 ends with a beatitude. Psalm 1 is never quoted in the New Testament. Psalm 2 is quoted or alluded to at least 18 times, more than any other single psalm. Warren Wearsby pointed out uh, that it is a messianic psalm. It's one of 13. 
Uh, for example, Psalm 8, Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Psalm 23, 40, don't try to write this down, 41, 45, 68, 69, 102, 110, and 118 are all Messianic Psalms also. The test of a Messianic Psalm is that it is quoted in the New Testament as referring to Jesus, but this is also a royal psalm referring to the coronation of a Jewish king and the rebellion of some vassal nations that hope to gain their freedom. Also, we find in Acts 4.25, which we'll look at in a little while, that this psalm was written by David, even though it doesn't say so in Psalm 2. So later on in the, in the book of Acts, we discover that it was David that wrote this psalm. So let's read the psalm together, and then we will get into the study of it. Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage, and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall He speak unto them in His wrath and vex them in His sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion, I will declare the decree that the Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O you kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and he perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. This afternoon, we're going to discover six C's in the book of Psalm, or Psalm 2. Not the book of Psalm 2, but Psalm 2. Six C's from Psalm 2. And the first one is there's a commotion in Psalm 2, verse 1. There's a commotion. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? This is a rhetorical question. This is expressing astonishment at the fact that the whole world rebels against the God that created it. It's senseless. It doesn't make sense. Why do the heathen rage? The word rage means to be in rebellion or to be restless, to conspire in open defiance of a king, uh, disorderly conduct in, in the act of attempting to overthrow the government. They, this rebellion, this rage, why do the heathen rebel? Why do they rage? Why do they try to usurp the authority of God? It also says, and they imagine a vain thing. The word, the Bible word vain means empty, empty. Why do they imagine these empty things? In their senseless anger against the God who created all of the universe, the world schemes, the world plans, the world imagines, they devise ways to usurp God from his rightful place. Romans 1 shows us the progression of this in unbelievers. It says in Romans 1 verses 21 through 25, it says, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? And their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like into corruptible man, into birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, 
to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forevermore. Amen. Why do the people imagine a vain thing? Why do we have all of these theories and schemes of men to explain away God? I don't think this is hip anymore, but why did they come up with a big bang? They probably call it something different now. Why do they bother to come up with this nonsense? Why does the world as a whole swallow the concept of evolution? R.A. Torrey wrote, Perhaps the most remarkable movement in philosophic thought that has occurred in any age was the rise and general acceptance by scientific circles of evolutionary theory. It was remarkable that men of science whose peculiar boast it is that they deal only with established facts, should have so readily departed from this rule and accepted a system based on hypothesis only, and which was and is still after the lapse of 40 years, he wrote this a while ago, without a single known fact to support it. Even when allowance is made for the well-known eagerness of many scientists to do away with dualism, which was Mr. Darwin's aim, it was still remarkable that men of trained intellect should have so promptly accepted at face value his two principal works in which the expression we may well suppose occurs over 800 times as the basis for his argument. Why do they swallow evolution, which is nothing but a hypothesis and an unproven theory at that, no examples of it at all, but they accept it as truth? Why do they rewrite history? Why do they ignore everything we've discovered in the last 60, 70, however many years about life within the womb? Why do they just ignore that? Why do they refuse biology when it comes to gender? Why do they redefine what sexuality is? All of their schemes and devices come up empty and meaningless and purposeless, purposeless, and they are all in vain. 1 Corinthians 3 says in verse 18, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, He taketh the wise in their own craftiness, and again the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. Time and time again, if you study history, men have discovered that their presumptions and presuppositions, all of their beliefs, all of their best guesses have been totally wrong. And God's word has remained true. For example, it used to be, and if you had a, a, an issue with a sickness or a disease, they just let some blood out of you. That'll cure it. We'll just get the bad blood out of your body. Well, they discovered finally that was a bad idea. And the whole time the Bible said the life of the body is in the blood, right? Hand washing was a big deal. It was ludicrous, this idea of washing your hands between uh, helping a woman give birth. Ludicrous. What does God tell the, the Israelites? He, this whole chapter is devoted to ritual washing and being clean. Nothing new. Ocean currents were discovered, and it turns out the Bible says that there's pathways in the sea. All of these things have been in Scripture all along. 
but man still imagines vain things. Romans 3 verse 4 says, God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest, be over, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. You have to realize we hold in our hands the truth. Through and through, every verse, every line, every bit of it given by inspiration of God. It's unchanged by the passing of time. The Bible makes it very clear. The world might imagine a vain thing. They might stir up trouble. They make a lot of noise. They might try to throw us off of our focus. But right here in this book, you can cut through all the commotion and all of the noise, and you can know what is true. There are many that declare, oh, you know, the Bible is true when it talks about doctrine and theology, but science, nah, not so much. History, no, not so much. But time and time again, it's been proven to know what it's talking about. It's all true, every bit of it. John 17 says, Jesus is praying before he goes to the cross. He says in John 17, and now I come to thee, and these things that I speak, these things I speak in the world that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Every bit of it is true. Let God be true and every man a liar. Are you sanctified daily by the truth of God's word? This might not be true in this church, but can I tell you a truth? The American church is biblically illiterate. They have no idea what the Bible says. They know catchphrases and buzzwords and shallow things, but they don't know what the Bible says. You cannot cut through the commotion of the modern world if you don't know the truth. And thy word is truth. Are you sanctified daily by the truth of the word of God? A preacher friend of mine up in Michigan uh, was doing a session for uh, youth pastors and talking about just how much time he spent in Scripture. And he talked about various Scripture plans and things that he did. And uh, he kind of impressed and amazed and shocked some of the men there. One of the men was in my church because he reached the Bible every three months. And his argument is, I need to stay fresh in the Word of God. As a pastor, I've got to know the truth. And so every three months, he read through the Bible. Are you sanctified daily by the truth of God's word? There's commotion. There's conspiracy. Verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Conspiracy is as old as the world itself. Since the day the devil said, I will be like the Most High. Conspiracy has existed. It's existed among humanity ever since he asked, Yea, hath God said? Isaiah 14 says in verse 12, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. 
I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High, yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. The great conspirator in heaven pulled a third of God's angels down with him. And his aim was the same as that of every sinful soul to usurp the authority of God. In Genesis 3, we have the original sin where it says, The serpent, verse 1, was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God hath made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden. God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, touch it lest ye die. Verse 4, And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. It's interesting, isn't it, the way that Satan deceived Eve. He appealed to her pride. Satan didn't say, all right, Adam and Eve, I want you to bow down and worship me. Didn't do that. He appealed to her pride. He drove Eve to elevate herself. No, 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 Eve. You need to look out for number one. You need to serve yourself. You're missing out. He convinced her to usurp God in her own life, and she gave in. And from the beginning of time, there's been global conspiracy led by the devil, as Christ said, the father of lies, and perpetrated by the children of the devil. It's an unending war against the God of the universe that we are soldiers in. Ephesians 6 says, Finally, my brethren, verse 10, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. What we are witnessing in our day is not a new thing. It's just the intensity of that war increasing. Where schemes were once hidden, now they're coming into light. We are so deep into this battle and so desensitized to all of the skirmishes that are being fought that what would have shocked us at one time no longer surprises us anymore. Well, I mean, was 2020 a pandemic? Are, are things that we are seeing part of some grand global conspiracy? Yeah. Yes, they are. Always have been. And there is nothing we can do to stop it. I mean, right there in Ephesians chapter 6, it says the deep state exists, doesn't it? Spiritual wickedness in high places. It's not a surprise. It's not a shock. And until the day that Jesus puts an end to the dissidents, the heathen will continue to rage. There's a conspiracy that's been going on since the beginning of time to usurp the authority of Almighty God over His creation. There's commotion. There's also the confidence here in verses 4 and 5. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Hey, newsflash, God's not worried. 
<laughs> He's laughing at all of their efforts. Operation Desert Storm in its combat phase was a war waged by coalition forces from 35 nations, led by the United States against Iraq, in response to the invasion and annexation of Kuwait. The initial conflict to expel Iraqi troops from Kuwait began with an aerial and naval bombardment on January 17, 1991, and continued for five weeks. It was followed by a ground assault on February 24th, and was a decisive victory for the coalition forces who liberated Kuwait and advanced into Iraqi territory. The coalition ceased its advance and declared a ceasefire only a hundred hours after the ground campaign started. The Iraqis lost over 3,000 tanks and 2,000 other combat vehicles during these battles against the American-led coalition. It wasn't what kids on the playground might call a fair fight. But there's an even more uneven battle coming. Revelation 19 says in verse 19, I saw the beast. And the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast. And then that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive in the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceedeth out of his mouth, and the fowls were filled with their flesh. One day, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the righteous judge of all the earth, will return to claim his kingdom, and he'll bring with him the greatest invasion force the world has ever seen. And the world and the devil will gather all of their armies against him and amass a huge army to fight him, but there's not a single shot fired. He speaks one word and they're all wiped out. No matter what the world might do or say, our God is not concerned by their commotions and conspiracies. The world and the devil will be ultimately defeated. He is confident he laughs, and we can also be confident in him. Romans 8.31 says, What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? According to Revelation 19, nobody. No one. Where is your confidence exactly? I really hope that you're not scrolling the headlines every single day and just discouraged and afraid for the future. How, how am I grandkid? How am I kids going to? Where's your confidence? Christians, we are on the winning side. Always have been. God's not worried. And we shouldn't be either. We should act like it. You can be like Noah. Noah didn't take his family away onto some mountaintop somewhere and hide for 100 years. Noah built the ark and preached daily. Preached daily for 100 years, the coming flood. And if Noah and his family were saved, your family can do all right also through the same grace of God. Where's your confidence? We are confident in the Lord. And then notice also Christ is there in verses 6 and 7 says, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. This psalm speaks of Jesus Christ. It speaks of his betrayal and death. 
It speaks of his resurrection and his second coming as king. And we know all those things because it's quoted in the New Testament. It's quoted in reference to his betrayal and death in Acts 4, verses 24 through 28. When they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage? And the people imagined vain things. The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth, against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. The church in Acts took the, the death, the betrayal of Christ as a fulfillment of Psalm 2. Acts 13 talks about his resurrection. It says in verse 32 and 33, And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, and that he hath raised up Jesus again. As it is also written in the second Psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. The resurrection was predicted in Psalm 2. All of the conspiracies, all of the schemes, through all of it, God still accomplished our redemption. I referenced this this morning in my sermon quickly, but in John 18, we can see how God worked through even the wicked rulers of the day. John 18, Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this of thyself, or did others tell it of thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews and saith unto them, I find no fault in him, no fault at all. And in chapter 19, it says, Then Pilate saith unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou could, couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore, he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. The religious leaders thought that they would be rid of this man forever. They thought that they were securing their own positions and their own power and their own control over the nation of Israel. They thought they had finally beaten Jesus, but God was using all of their conspiracies, all of their commotions to complete the mission of Christ, which was to secure our salvation by dying on the cross for our sins. All of it God used for his glory. And then we see in verses 8 and 9, the coronation, a coronation. It says, Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Think about the following passages in light of what we have just read and what we hear in Psalm 2. Romans 14 says, But why dost thou judge thy brother? 
Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. The whole earth is given to Christ as his possession. Philippians chapter 2 says in verses 5 through 11, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found and fashioned as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is a coronation day coming, and all the earth will bow before the King of Kings. Revelation 19 says in verse 11, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of, and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. There's a day coming when Christ will reign as king. The ultimate authority. It's far wiser to bow and submit to the king now than to be forced to later. Are you in submission to your king? Are you walking in obedience to his word, the sword of his mouth? It's far wiser to be submissive to him now than it is to give account to him later. You know, I, I know what it's like in my own life. Maybe you are the same way. Sometimes the lessons come hard and long. <laughs> Lord, I... There have been so many times where I've known he was trying, you know, there have been so many times where I've gone to a pastor's conference or something like that, knowing what God would preach to me at that conference. You ever had that happen to you? You walk in and the pastor gets up and he opens the Bible and you go, oh, here it comes. This is exactly what I needed to hear. God's been working on you a long time about something. It's far better to submit to him now and to give account for it later. Far better. Are you in submission to your king? And then notice the call that's made in verses 10 through 12. It says, Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and he perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. God in His grace and His mercy, even though this psalm is talking about how he does, He's not worried. He's going to conquer. He is the King. In His mercy and in His grace, He pleads with the world, be wise, be warned, and repent. 
This warning rings out like the preaching of Noah, Lot, Jonah, John the Baptist, Jesus himself. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Are you ready for that day? Has there ever been a time in your life where you've fallen at his feet in need of his mercy and his grace for salvation? Because if you haven't fallen at the cross, you will bow before the judge when he comes as king. Are you living in light of his return? If you know Christ already, do these things affect the way you live every single day of your life? 1 John 3 says in verse 2 and 3, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in himself purifieth himself, even as he is pure. One of these days we will look at Jesus face to face and be like him. Do I know what that's going to be like? No. But one of these days, it's going to happen. And the Bible says that every single one of us that has that hope ought to be in the business of becoming more like Him every single day. When you see Him face to face, you understand the context in which I'm saying this, but when you see Him face to face, how far are you going to change? How far are you going to have to go? All of us fall so far short of the glory of God but all of us, by the grace of God, should be conformed to the image of His Son every single day. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren... Are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief? Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for an helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath. Amen but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. The fact that we know that Christ is coming for his church ought to motivate the way we live our life every single day. The great preacher F.B. Meyer once asked D.L. Moody, what is the secret of your success? And Moody replied, for many years, I have never given an address without the conscious thought that the Lord might come before I am finished. That's what the preacher said. Do you realize that everything you do, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatsoever you do, the Lord might come before you're finished. Whether it's clocking in at work, whether it's training up your children, the Lord might come before you're finished. And if the Lord returned today, would he find you faithful? I find it harder to contemplate 
or at least more sobering and challenging to contemplate, not if the Lord returned today, but if the Lord would have returned on Monday or on Tuesday or on Wednesday or on Thursday or a Friday or Saturday of last week, would he have found you faithful then? Luke 18, 8, Jesus says, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Will he find you faithful? He might come before he fi you're finished with anything you set out to do this week. The only way that you and I can see through the lives and the conspiracies of the world that we're living in, it's not to put on a tinfoil hat and jump on YouTube and watch all the videos and listen to all the podcasts. It's to be deep in the Word of God. This is the truth. Thy Word is truth. And God is not surprised. He is not taken aback. He is not caught off guard. He knows exactly what's going on and He laughs. He's confident. And you and I can be confident in Christ. You and I can be confident that we are living in the day which God has intended for us to live in. And He will do as you promised. Think about this. He has already saved your soul. He will sustain you to the end. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Submit yourself to Christ and be ready to meet Him when he comes. It could be today. I'd be for that. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would work in this time of invitation, that you would speak to our hearts, and that we'd respond to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Maybe the Lord has spoken to you this morning. We would encourage you to take some time and pray and do business with him. Maybe you've realized you need Christ. We'd be happy to help you and minister you to you any way we can from the Word of God. So you use this time and take this time and come.